The gospel lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, written the latest of the gospels, probably in 100 to 120 CE. This gospel was written uh, by, uh, the, the writer wrote this gospel to a community that was undergoing some very painful transitions. At this time, Christianity had been part of Judaism. It had been a sect of Judaism. But during this time, the uh, Jewish officials had decided that the Christians needed to make a decision. You're either Jewish or you're Christian. And so there was, there was movement for them to be kicked out of the synagogue. This became a real challenge for these Christians because they, they felt deeply their uh, roots in Judaism. So who were they now as Christians? Often John's writings makes formal confessions of faith about who they were and whose they were. And this morning we find those confessions as well as a bit of John's consternation with the Jewish officials. So listen now for God's word as it comes to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father have sent, has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that through believing you may have life 
in his name. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, your spirit inspired those who wrote the Bible, and it enlightens us to hear your word fresh each day. But the story of Thomas, who wanted more than anything else to see the risen Lord, pour into our hearts today, reviving our spirits and giving assurance to our souls. Amen. Easter is over. How many of these things have you already checked off your list this past week? Easter dinner done. Check. The good china put away. Check. Companies gone home. Check. Easter baskets and other decorations are back in the boxes and on the shelves. Check. Most of the Easter candy has been consumed or at least allocated to avoid more sugar overload, and you're relatively certain that 95% of the eggs that were hidden have indeed been found, and that the other 5% aren't in places where they're going to stink later on. New church clothes are hanging back in the closet, and new shoes that pinch a little have been set aside to break in later. Check. The lilies are gone from the sanctuary. The flower cross has been dismantled. And all that lingers are the distinctive smells of lilies and spring flowers. Easter's over, and it's time to get back to our usual way of doing things, right? We enjoy the rhythm of our lives. There's a stability and a security because we know what to expect and what's expected of us. There's a sameness, a tranquility, and we celebrate because we probably haven't changed much of anything, really. We haven't had to think too hard or move outside our comfort zones too much. How easy it is to be shaped by the routines of life, to be formed by the roles and values and the ways of the world that we've created. Easter's over, and it's just us, the faithful remnant, gathered together to worship on this beautiful morning. But it's only the first Sunday after Resurrection Day, and I wonder if perhaps we've moved too quickly to put away the vestiges of our Easter affirmations. Today and every Sunday, we celebrate that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, history shifted forever. God broke into our world and a new age, based on God's grace and the gift of faith, has begun. It's so easy to forget the new when we're so comfortable with the old. This morning's story from the Gospel of John recounts two times in which the disciples encountered Jesus after the resurrection. During the first, on Easter evening, the disciples are there, but Thomas isn't around. They've been seated, seating, 
been seated in a room, crowded together, with the door locked and the shades drawn, scared that they will be the next ones to be arrested, when suddenly Jesus comes in. He isn't a ghost that they could see the wallpaper through, and he isn't just a figment of their imagination. He offers them a blessing. Peace be with you. Then he shows them enough of what the Romans had done to him to convince them that he is as real as they are, if not more so. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them, gives them a few instructions to go with it, and then he leaves, just as suddenly as he appeared. Then eight days later, the disciples are hiding behind locked doors again, but this time Thomas is with them. We don't know where he's been, only that he hadn't been with them on Resurrection Day. The disciples tell Thomas the same thing that Mary Magdalene had told them. We have seen the Lord. But Thomas doesn't believe them, just as they hadn't believed Mary Magdalene. He rejects their verbal witness and demands proof, but no more proof than Jesus freely offered the others. His mind searches for clarity, and Jesus is the ultimate reliable witness. Thomas didn't question the resurrection. He wanted to be certain that Jesus had died. For him, belief depended on evidence. Christ's wounds were real. This is proof. This is the truth. Jesus died, and he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? The human mind searches for order, to make sense out of things, to understand the world, to organize the data that comes into our awareness. This is the impulse that pushes us toward scientific discovery. It's at the core of legal arguments and forensic debates. It's the reason that people like me love mystery stories. We have a strong desire to follow the evidence until the mystery is solved. We send robots with cameras to the farthest ends of the universe so we can know for sure what's out there. We won't believe an assertion until a complicated mathematical equation says it's true. And anytime, anytime there is a wall bearing a sign that says wet paint, we'll touch it just to make sure. We live in a world where proof trumps faith. If our minds want evidence, then our hearts need even more and deeper assurances. The writer of the Gospel of John knew that ultimately evidence is not enough. The Holy Spirit is needed to provide a closing argument for skeptical minds. In the last analysis, to profess the mystery of resurrection is a gift of grace. The evidence merely reinforces the conviction given to the heart in faith. 
faith is a mystery of the heart that our minds want to solve. To admit that we take certain things on faith is to say that we're willing, in limited circumstances, for things not to make perfect sense. Still, we want faith to be supported by data so that the leap of faith is a manageable one. In this season of Easter, we celebrated the biggest mystery of our faith, that Jesus died for the sins of the world and God raised him from the grave. This fact of faith compared to all the other fantastic stories about Jesus, his healing miracles, walking on water, knowing people that he's never met. This fact is the hardest one for our human mind to comprehend. Nothing in life is more certain than death. It's easy to determine. It's as inevitable as taxes. And above all, it's permanent. For Jesus to be raised from the dead denies every instinct of the mind. It can't happen. Period. Right? I think it's unfair to single Thomas out and to label him as alone, as doubting. It's as if he's being disdained and scolded when we do. Why didn't he catch it right away? Was he an agnostic? Was he a skeptic? Was he our professional doubter? Is he really any different from any of us? Hardly. He simply had been absent beyond the sight and sound of Jesus' presence. Actually, the word doubt does not appear in the text in the original Greek. The literal rendering of the words would be, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Is there a difference between unbelieving and doubt? Thomas is encouraged by Jesus to move from unbelief to belief and thus reassures future generations of believers like us that having seen Jesus, those who were the first generation witnesses, having seen Jesus isn't a prerequisite for faith. We are to be included in the joy of the disciples at the sight of the risen Lord. Thomas is actually one step ahead of them. He only wants what they've already received. But the disciples have received, and they were still not living like Easter people. They were entrenched, locked away from the world and its realities. The Easter miracle of this lesson is that Jesus comes again and again to scared and confused disciples. The disciples didn't merit a second visit by Jesus, but they got one, as well as a renewed gift of his peace.
Thomas is also given exactly what he requests, a chance to see and touch Jesus for himself. The story doesn't tell us that Thomas actually touched Jesus because Thomas's touching Jesus is beside the point. The point is that Jesus' offer of himself over and over again to people who long to see him with no questions asked, this offer, Jesus offering himself and giving himself repeatedly is a gift of grace, the gift of his presence, the gift of his peace. This is the good news for the second Sunday of Easter. After the high point of Easter Sunday, we very quickly wonder about the staying power of Easter and about ourselves as Easter people. On Easter Sunday, we were able to hold at bay all our worries and concerns and doubts, and we handed them over to the power of the resurrection. But it doesn't take long for the vocabulary of death to creep back in and to push Easter out. Like Thomas and the disciples, it's not unusual for us to feel afraid, to want more, to need more, to demand more. The Easter gospel turns the world upside down, and we live in a right-side-up reality. We tend to live in fear, even in the face of the Easter proclamation. But Jesus comes anyway, and comes repeatedly, to reassure and empower us over and over and over again to live as Easter people, full of hope and courage. Easter is real. Easter is not really over. Easter is not just trumpets and lilies and a full sanctuary, but the good news that God's unconditional love unfolds in our lives and in our stories as we are regularly tempted by fear and despair. We've all had times in our lives where we've doubted, where we've said to God, show me a sign, give me some proof. Maybe it was because we were in a place of unbearable pain or in, at a time when we faced overwhelming decisions with no answers or a time when God seemed silent. We've all been at that point where, like Thomas, we yearned for a sign from God. Jesus never lectures the disciples for hiding behind closed doors, even after they received the Spirit. Nor did he criticize Thomas for wanting a tactile experience of his risen Lord. Jesus' gracious response to them is, is for us as well. These stories are parables of grace, the centrality of grace for those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. God's grace is offered to us as we remember and celebrate Christ's presence in our communion this morning. God feeds us with the bread of life and the cup of salvation. 
We are invited to the table not because we've earned the right to eat and drink with Jesus as our host, but simply because God loves us and graciously welcomes us again and again in sharing this meal as Christ's body. We affirm that we trust God for all we have not yet seen and for the assurance of God's eternal, unconquerable love for us through Christ Jesus, our Lord and risen Savior. Alleluia. Amen. Our hymn is in the green hymnal, located at the ends of your pews, number 75, Beyond the Beauty and the Awe. Thank you. 